This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Thank you to our newest sponsor, Keg Shoe Keg Tracking. Learn more about what they do at www.kegshoe.ca. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day to day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. What you're seeing in beer now is, is just ever-expanding opportunities to combine ingredients for interesting outcomes. And, you know, it's not to be corny, but amazing. Well, he's been elusive, but finally I bring you the debut of Alan Young and his arsenal of puns. This week on the show, Alan is joined by his colleague, a voice you'll recognize from other episodes, to help us make sense out of a bunch of confusing terms in the world of adjuncts. This is Alan Young. I'm the Southeast Sales Manager for Brewer Supply Group and 36 years active member with Master Brewers Association of the Americas. I'm Ashton Lewis. I'm the manager of training and technical support for BSG, and I have been a, ma- a Master Brewers member for 30 years. There's a lot of confusing terminology in the world of adjuncts, especially for brewers who maybe don't use them all that often. We're going to talk about the differences between terms like rolled, flaked, toasted, and torrified. Where should we start? Let's start with uh, rolled and flaked because those are probably the the most common out there. Okay. So Alan's the flaky guy on the call here. So uh, Alan, do you want to talk about flakes? Sure, I'll roll with that one. Uh, <laughs> the The idea of of, of flaking a, an adjunct is to uh, uh, basically flatten it, expose more of it to the, uh, the the soluble liquids that it's going to leach into, and. Uh, expose a lot of the edges and so forth, which has positive and negative uh, attributes to that with oxygen interactions. But I think the, uh, the terminology here is something that uh, Ashton and I have gone back and forth, even to the point of, uh, you know, deciding that uh, we're going we're gonna to call everything kind of flaked, even though rolled is what they do to make the flake, if that uh, helps anybody here. Um, 
I, I kind of uh, picture these steam rollers, um, and uh, steam is one of the attributes that's used here to achieve heat in a lot of these products. So it is kind of a, a alphabet soup. Um, I, I think of terminologies, even spellings between torrified with I's and E's has been disputed for years. So uh, uh, we're here to help clarify a subject used in hazy beers. Ashton, why don't <laughs> well, you roll with that? I'll roll with that. So, I mean, just to somewhat sum up what Alan just said, the, the terms flaking and rolling are, are really synonymous. So the, the, the machine that's used to do the flaking is oftentimes called a, a roller. And that's where I think some of the, the confusion is, is just in the semantics. But I think the interesting thing about, and we're just going to call these rolled just to make it easier, or I'm going to call them rolled. So the, um, the interesting thing about rolled grains in general is that you can dry roll. So you can actually do this at home. You can buy uh, rollers to, to make your own uh, rolled cereals at home. And that's a dry rolling process, or you can steam it just like steam conditioned or, or uh, conditioned milling for, for malt milling. And the wetting of the grain through steam helps to make the, the appearance of the, the rolled product a little bit more uniform. But one of the things that I find interesting is that if you look at the history of all this, there's a um, retired professor of animal science that was at Colorado State for, for many, many years named John Matsushima. And he wrote an article, uh, really kind of a, gave a presentation in 2006 at the Cattle Grain Processing Symposium on the history of, of rolled grains in the feed industry. And it really was about nutrient availability for livestock. And that's where all this stuff came from. So the, the, the purpose of rolling, whether it's for animal feed or for brewing, is to help make the starch more available, um, either biologically to animals or more uh, available in the mash. All right, let's uh, let's move on to one of the other different sort of um, cooking methods, if you will. Uh, what else is going on? Well, in, in that area, you start to get into the the various different methods of of uh, achieving some level of pre gelatination, which is the the next step uh, to make things mash ready. Uh, in in other words, uh, some some brewers are not well equipped with equipment that can do uh, Either decoction or uh, boiling of of uh, of these things prior to uh, uh, exposing them to the enzymes from barley. So you know you can get into the terms of uh, fully gelatinized, pre-gelatinized, uh, micronized. We love to put I Z E D on things. So it is uh, it's the introduction of again there the uh, popcorn effect as Ashton and I. Have, have decided, you know, from corn, most people can visualize the, uh, the, the moisture inside a corn kernel heated up enough actually erupts that uh, starch in, into what we, we eat in a theater and uh, is also a marvelous adjunct for, uh, for beers. And, and those kind of starches, I think, are uh, uh, tools in the toolkit if you're looking for with oats, uh, silkiness or flavor, or texture things, or or not, uh, and then again with the uh, huge up increase in hazy product beers, uh, pushing the upward limits of adding these adjuncts, these cereal grains to barley malts to achieve uh, uh, juiciness. 
uh, juiciness. So it is, it is historically, uh, Ashton, I, I think you and I talked about things always looking at history and then looking forward. So that's, that's the great thing about MBAA. You can, you can dig up things like those papers and see you know, that this, this lent itself to the brewing industry from really animal feed to get efficiencies and, and uses. So I like to look back at like uh, Anton Schwartz, great name for, uh, for a brewer uh, who, who worked with corn and rice adjuncts and stabilization back in, uh, in the early days because of uh, using 100% barley malt uh, led to a lot of uh, turbidity and, and shelf stability problems. And uh, by adding adjuncts, they, they were able to use uh, indigenous grains in the United States that, you know, cereals that, that could actually help that problem. And I think now that's gone from 10% to 50, 60%, you know, in some of these additions in, in uh, mash bills. Yeah. So just to kind of roll the, you know, kind of roll the clock back, Alan, you use two terms that I want to kind of, um, revisit micronized and torrified. So these two terms, micronized and torrified, add another layer of confusion. We talked about the the differences of rolled and, and flaked that they're interchangeable, and and torrified and micronized are also interchangeable words. So that popcorn popping, you know, what is that? Well, that's a the way it's done in practice is to use infrared heat. So in a um, if you imagine a tunnel uh, like a tunnel pasteurizer, instead of having uh, liquid as the heating medium and a and a tunnel heater with infrared, there's an infrared heat source in the in the tunnel. So these grains go through the tunnel and they're they're heated with infrared energy and they pop. Now the the term micronized and torrified, unfortunately, they're they're interchangeable and they look a lot different uh, when you read the term. But one one place I see torrified is this is the French spelling that's used on coffee bags. You'll see uh, the the French, um, I don't speak French, so I'm not going to attempt it. But um, <laughs> and on, like, if you go to a, a hotel that has Starbucks coffee in the hotel room, you'll see that it says, you know, coffee, tour of Fichon, or whatever it says on the on the bag. And the word torrified really just means that it's been roasted, you know, dry heated. So again, the, the animal industry, the animal feed industry, uh, developed this in the 70s in England. So the uh, micronized uh, slash torrified grains were used to basically further gelatinize because the the flaking and rolling process is not complete gelatinization and a lot of brewers i think get confused on that they assume that because it's flaked it's quote mash ready and a lot of the mash ready adjuncts um, are mash ready before they've been flaked like you know wheat and oats and rye you don't have to you don't have to cook those for infusion mashing but for uh, for maize um, aka corn and rice, um, the, the micronized or torrified uh, flaked rice and maize are, are more thoroughly gelatinized than the, the rolled versions. Okay, you just mentioned like three different things I want to follow up on. So um, one is, um, uh, how about the term puffed? Is that uh, when I think of popcorn, I think that sounds like something that might be puffed. Is that is puffed the same thing as this? Well, that's not on our list of alphabet soup, but yeah, puff, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Like those, uh, what are they called? Sugar puffs or sugar pops? That's a torrified or micronized product. So yes, puffing okay. is the same thing. And yes, okay. John, John, that is shot from a cannon. Uh, all of that has <laughs> to be made that way. That sounds, uh, that must be why it's so expensive, I guess. I yes. don't know. You just talked about sort of um, 
when these are things are used in in tandem. So uh, you're saying obviously that uh, something that's just been on the on the roller by itself is you know not necessarily mash ready, um, but um, these these processes can be combined so that it is. So in that case, I'm assuming maybe I've got this wrong, but um, if something is going to be you know uh, fully gelatinized and made mash ready, that maybe it's going to be micronized or torrified. That raw raw grain is going to go through that process first, and then it would go on the roll. Is that correct? that's correct? You can you can take a a popcorn, if you will, and, and flatten it out. So that's um, torrified slash micronized first, and then it's rolled. And to back up a little bit, there there are uh, flakes or rolled grains we can using those terms interchangeably, if you have a rolled grain, a lot of those are mash ready. And some of those are mash ready before they've been rolled. For example, wheat has a low gelatinization temperature. Um, but one of the one of the factors that influences the uh, degree of gelatinization in rolled grains is not only the ge- gelatinization temperature of the starch, but also how, how thick the grain has been rolled and how it's been uh, treated or not treated with uh, with liquid because the the presence of of water improves the gelatinization. I mean, you you can't really gelatinize without moisture. So if it's steamed and then rolled, uh, you're going to have more likely a higher degree of gelatinization than if you dry roll. Okay, and that actually is a good segue to my my third question was just sort of like a um, how much variability is there in that rolling process? You know, do does the processor have the ability to um, use lots of different temperatures and moisture contents, or is it kind of like everything that's rolled that you can kind of expect this type of processing? I'm going to run with that one, Alan, because I've, I've looked into that recently. And yeah, you just like just like with brewing, all the all the process parameters that we control in the brewing process, the same thing can happen with the the flaking. You can have or rolling. You can have different flake thicknesses. Uh, you can you can have different heat treatments. So yes, all of those parameters are in play. And again, going back to that that work by uh, the review paper by Dr. Matsushima. Um, a lot of the variability in those products has to do with biological availability of the feed to livestock. Okay. So, you know, a brewer really just knowing something's rolled, that's really not enough information. That's really not going to tell you, you know, whether or not it's, uh, it's mash ready and to what extent uh, gelatinization has taken place. Correct. That's tr- That's true. Yes. And, and I did, I did uh, also want to uh, put in there, there's one more layer with this. We have a, toasted flaked product that that um, is in play here and i was working with uh, uh the folks that we one of our suppliers and they uh, they actually do adjust the speed of their uh, uh treatment process and they actually uh kind of change with the crop year and moisture it was i, I think ashton uh uh, one of the, one of my large customers was <clears throat> kind of seeing a change in the product, and they went back and kind of reviewed their entire system. And um, we used a good friend of ours in the lab there at the brewery, which was iodine, uh, just the old fashioned kind of uh, bench trials with some micro mashes that they did, and they were kind of looking for uh, uh, conversion times and various different things. It was very uh, kind of just just a rough idea uh, to see if they, they could get it to uh, uh, convert in their single step mash better. So it's kind of interesting. I think there's a lot of uh, variabilities in play here. And 
and if we, you know, say you can work with your suppliers to a certain degree, the feedback's very important for suppliers because they might be supplying brewing as well as the food industry, as well as the feed industry. And we're all looking for different parameters, you know, but I, I think beer always kind of gets some attention over uh, some of the other, other uh, uh, asks from the Keebler elf guy making cookies or something. But I just wanted to throw that in there too. We do have a toasted flake product that I was working with. And um, that's just another uh, dry heat source, I guess, on top of uh, uh, the, uh, the rolling. Yeah. Talk, talk more about that difference between toasting and, and micronization or, or torf, torf, torification or whatever, because, um, you know, the descriptions I've seen, um, basically toasting and micronized, uh, it's kind of a similar process. Like you're using, uh, I think the same piece of equipment to, to some degree, it's like an infrared heat source and, um, and sort of like one of those tunnel ovens, right? Correct. It looks like a pizza and pincher oven. Pizza that, oven, yeah. yeah there you like go. A, if you go to like a Domino's or whatever, you know, it's like a, it's the the fast pizza oven thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, I, I think uh, you know, Ashton, if you had any uh, any layers to throw on top of that, it's just more of a lot of these stories seem to uh, use a lot of this vocabulary, and then there's uh, you know what's the the real difference in it. Um, uh, and I was wondering also when I was working with this customer, they were using the non-flaked, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, the non-toasted version originally, and they liked the toasted because they felt it, it actually brought some uh, taste characteristics to it that were what you'd expect with a roast, uh, a roast or toasted product. Uh, and I couldn't tell if that was just a perceived thing or, you know, the color kind of looked the same to me. and. It was uh, uh, maybe, you know, in a blind tasting, they couldn't tell, but uh, the story kind of sold the sizzle there on, on that. So uh, I don't have an exact answer on the toasting versus uh, if that is a just dry oven or is it actually the infrared? So uh, I'd toss that back to Ashton if he's seen anything on that toasting process from Canada versus the UK. Those are the two places we source most of it. Yeah, I do. And I mean, this is a, this is a very specific thing. And I, you know, this is not a sales pitch, but it's just, you know, I'm going to refer to some names here, but we have a product in Canada called OIO and they use the word toasted and the OIO toasted products are produced in, in a micronizing oven. So it's really the word toasted is synonymous with, with torrified or micronized in the case of that one product. And there are other products that, that use toasting in that way. We also have a product in our catalog from Belgium, which is Dingeman's toasted wheat. And Dingeman's toasted wheat is a completely different process, and that's more like a a kilned or a um, I'm sorry, a, a a drum roasted product. So the Dingeman's toasted wheat is a is a very um, lightly roasted product, and it's not a a toasted product in the sense of like micronized. So th there is a little confusion on that because toasted you know, has different meanings. And to me, like toasted, you can have toasted bread, which is just bread that's been put through a toaster. Um, 
and you can micronize something and then you can add, let's say, more heat to it to change the color. So the word toasted is a little, you're going to get a little bit more confusion with that term than the other terms we've talked about, which are rolled and flaked being synonymous and micronized and um, torrified as synonymous and toasted synonymous sometimes with micronized and torrified. And with so that, making me hungry, I should have just used the example of like the the hotel um, <laughs> breakfast with toaster, you know, that you can with the little conveyor belt. Like that, would, that probably yes. would have been a better example. And, and with that, you expect some melodinant effects and 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 roasty or toasty, you know, bready uh, caramelization changes. Yes, exactly. And and uh, I think the uh, you know the nuances are you know you've got to look at the uh, the chef's kitchen to as Ashton demonstrated these guys are using the same name totally different processes and i I think the end results would be quite different not not one subbing for the other okay um i gotta ashen i feel like you had something else you wanted to say am i right about that or no i was just gonna say you know to alan's point the the chef's kitchen a lot of this is like marketing you know why do why do different companies use different names it's like it's the same reason that you know, in the world of food, consumer products, there's, you know, different names given to the same products all the time. And I think a lot of brewing customers get confused on that because they think that there's some kind of like world naming convention for, for brewing ingredients. And there's not. Be great if there were. Yeah. <laughs> um. I, I agree. I agree. Coming up. I've definitely heard from brewers that have used those flaked maize or rice products and they don't convert and they don't get the yield they're looking for. It's like, well, you didn't use the right process. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. Get back to the future with Weyermann Azaria 1924. Made from the oldest German malting barley variety, Azaria shows malty sweet flavor and a soft biscuit-like aroma. This heirloom malt makes amazing traditional Bavarian-style lagers, not to mention modern craft lagers and malt-forward ales. For more info, samples, and orders, please visit go.bsgcraft.com slash contact us. Are you looking to improve yield, quality, and sustainability in your cellar? 
Alpha Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience offering centrifuges, dealkalization systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. With the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals, visit alphalaval.us slash MBAA to learn more. Thank you to Brewing with Enzymes by Novazymes. For commercial brewers, enzymes can ease filtration, eliminate diacetyl rest, meet attenuation targets, and optimize your raw materials to save on labor. If you're curious to learn more, head over to brewingwithenzymes.com and get 50% off with your first order using discount code MBAA. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Texas has a virtual spring meeting April 7th. And another Master Brewers webinar, this one on the topic of funding opportunities for brewing research, April 14th. Don't miss the Building a Welcoming Workplace webinar, April 19th. District Northwest meets May 20th and 21st in beautiful Hood River. Lab on the Cheap, another Master Brewers webinar, June 8th. I can highly recommend the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course, which starts July 8th in Madison, Wisconsin. The 2022 Brewing Summit, that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC, is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. How do these different grains work functionally within a recipe? So, for example, how do you see flaked and torrified wheat being used by brewers? Um, well, I'm, I'm seeing it mostly as a, uh, uh, a support to create uh, a beta-glucan substance uh, increase, but not as much as oats, uh, to have a... Uh, uh, a more hazy product. And again, I'm seeing a huge uptick in sales in this area, and it has been almost always to uh, to the New England IPA style. Uh, in, in lieu of throwing in flour, which uh, kind of started, uh, you know, maybe in uh, urban uh, kind of word-to-word, mouth-to-mouth, uh, people were putting in just baker's flour. I think they've they've decided that flour comes from wheat and they've moved, <laughs> they've moved up in convenience to, uh, to a more, you know, brewer, brewer friendly thing. And, uh, in, in some of the discussions I've had of, about the use of this, it's, uh, it's that it is not fully, uh, uh you know, accessible to the, uh, the enzyme package. So it's gonna, it's gonna leave some, some, uh, uh kind of, mouthfeel to it that that's that's part of it and a support for reflecting light back uh that's the haziness so they they like that structure and i think uh, i've seen a lot of that uh also unmalted wheat in the same thing has uh come come into play uh so those those are it um maybe talk a little bit about the the difference you know you might expect going from a a toasted whole wheat to a, a, a toasted flaked wheat? 
Well, some of it is going to be to um, how it's handled in the brewery. You know, if you take, let's say, a, a toasted whole wheat, and by whole, let, let's say that it's been micronized so it, or uh, toasted, puffed, and it, it's not rolled, um, you're going to need to mill that. You can't just put those whole uh, grains into a mash. Now, sure. with, with rolled grains, a lot of brewers do add those directly to the mash. And even some of our larger customers have the ability to add rolled products into their grist stream post mill. Um, now, personally, I think that I'd rather add them before the mill because if you have whole grains left in your spent grain bed, then that means that you haven't extracted the starch. So th- to me, it's kind of wasteful to add whole flakes to a mash because you're you're probably, depending on the thickness of the, the flake, you may or may not have complete utilization of that raw material. So I would say that, that the milling um, requirement is a big difference between the flakes and the, the whole toasted or torrefied type grain. And there's there's really no no reason not to mill it, right? I mean, it's just going to no. give you better access to the to the starch, right? Yeah, I would. I mean, my preference. I mean, even for like home brewing, would be to somehow reduce the particle size. But certainly in a commercial brewery, and you know, really a lot of breweries are set up where adding adding grist between the grist case and the mash mixer or the mash tun is difficult, in, unless you have a special you know hopper. Uh, in that in that line so a lot of times it's a lot easier just to add it uh, into the mill right and and again i think that's uh interesting uh you're you're in the technical i'm in sales i'd rather they just put it in a hole need a lot more of it and no, <laughs> and then the spent grain farmer loves it just getting back to your paper about feed grains this does go to the uh uh, the spent grain farmer eventually. So yeah, I think I just kidding around there, but, uh, yeah, I would always advocate, uh, this, this would go through the mill. It's a great, uh, mixing and, and point of in, introduction. The only thing feedback wise I've had from brewers, uh, Ashton and John really to both of you is, uh, uh, worry about set mash, uh, loudering issues, uh, viscosity, uh, things like that. I don't know if that's something we're going to touch on on this this panel, but it seems to be as these percentages are increasing of uh, uh, you know uh, non really husked things is what I was mostly uh, seeing uh, or poor husks at all uh, that they um, they're really running into some uh, issues with uh, timeliness and viscosities to get uh, loudering done. And that's something uh, that's kind of uh, the backside of all of these additions to your grist bill. I was just going to say, it's kind of funny, you know, Alan, Alan's a little bit older than I am, but we're, we're from the same generation and, you know, all three of us were, you know, from the mid Atlantic area. So I grew up in, in Maryland as I became a, like a human in Maryland. And uh, I started drinking beer that was, you know, I was high school and drinking good beer and brewing beer in high school, but like at um, Wild Goose in Cambridge, you know, Alan Pugsley, all those beers, um, the the Pugsley Revolution, they all. I mean, I think a lot of his beers used torrefied wheat, and it was not used to make hazy beers. Used for you know uh, foam stability and some other functional things. But when I think of adjuncts, I don't think of hazy beer. I think of I think a classic, you know, American lagers where, you know, 20 to 25% adjunct was the norm for a long time. And with those beers, you know, 
nobody added rice holes. I mean, you know, Budweiser and Pabst and Schlitz weren't adding rice holes to their mash to um, to deal with the adjuncts. But I think one of the big differences is is that if you're using rice or corn in a large brewery, it's you know it's fully solubilized in the mashing process. And I think a lot of the gummy th- um, observations that some brewers have is really a reflection of mashing that's not necessarily as effective as some of those more traditional mash methods. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, and I guess the the percentage of, of, of a product like this is probably not going to be that high anyway, because uh, if it is, I mean, you've got, you know, these were, um, you know, uh, these were not malted products, so there's there hasn't been that enzyme development, and you know you've got to be careful to at least uh, use a small enough amount of it that you're supporting it, you know, with plenty of uh, high DP base malt or maybe uh, exogenous enzymes. Correct. Yes, I agree, and uh, it is it is kind of another uh, aspect, Ashton, to think. Uh, uh, have you had any looks at increasing the uh, the water to grain ratio with the addition of a lot of these uh, flaked products and things, do you find them more of a sponge to uh, uh, push the, uh, the liquor to grist ratio higher? You know, the classics are always written around barley malt. Um, but uh, I, I also kind of like the idea that maybe a thinner mash, a little more water, uh, is is going to help that uh, already strained enzyme activity. Uh, so, any any thoughts on whether that's a, a valid theory to pass on to people? I don't know. I haven't. I, I don't think. I don't think the liquor to grist ratio needs to be different. But if you're, you know, my brewing past, I worked in a brewery where we had a mash mixer, so we didn't have the ability to add anything directly to the to the lauter ton in any any real volume so everything that we used went directly into the mash mixer and we had a, we were using about a 3.2 to 1 liquor to grist ratio which is it's not thin but it, you know it's it's a lot thinner than a infusion mash at 2.6 to 1 to 3 to 1 but I, I think in an infusion mash if i were using flake grains i would definitely be tempted to add them um selectively you know maybe add them to the the top uh, portion of the the bed with malt so that if there is any problems with um you know the lack of husk causing any kind of work separation issues i don't have that concentrated at the bottom of the mash bed uh, good tip on the uh, on the raking then it's not put down to the uh the level of the false bottom and uh creating a a, a, a damning process there that's a good idea yeah, because that's where that, you know, the husk are really, if you look at a cross-section of a grain bed, there's classification within the grain bed, you know, when when the latter ton is filled, or in the case of a mash ton, the, the classification has to do with how the, the mash ton is loaded. So, I, yeah, I think if um if you can do it, it would be preferable not to put your flake grains and malt in first, add, you know, add your flake grains with malt toward the end so that your your uh, your husk density is greatest at the bottom and diluted toward the top of the grain bed. I want to walk through a couple of scenarios that I bet you guys get asked about all the time. So scenario one, let's say a brewer reaches out to you because they want to make their first authentic American lager or maybe a cold IPA. 
assume this is your average American brew pub setup. So no rice cooker, no availability to uh, handle liquid adjunct, which needs to be heated. How do you help them navigate ingredient selection between the, I don't know, half dozen different rice or corn products that BSG carries? Well, I would, I'm going to jump on this one and then I'll let you follow up, Alan. So my thought on this is, is looking at um, what they need. And I think if you're an infusion mash, it's not that I think, I, you know, it's well accepted. If you're an infusion mash brewer, you don't have the ability to cook. So you, you need to have a product that that's um, either pre-gelatinized or the starch gelatinization temperature that's compatible with the mash. But if we take rice and corn as the two examples of uh, the type of grain that you, you, you might want to use for those types of beers. So let's say a customer says, I want to use rice or corn. Well, where I would go is torrified, um, torrified slash micronized rice or corn, which we happen to carry. And the reason I would select those is that they have the highest degree of gelatinization of any of these, uh, you know, pre-cooked type grains. And just to, to recap on that, the, the whole micronization process was developed for animal feed, specifically horses, because horses are not ruminant animals. And they um, the biological availability of micronized grains is the starch availability is much, much greater and you get a better feed value with uh, with horse feed when it's when it's micronized. So that's where I would go. Uh, micronized uh, corn or micronized rice and then add those directly to the mash ton at, you know, whatever, uh, 65 degrees Celsius, 153, 154 degree infusion mash. And I would, I would jump on there and say, maybe you, you, uh, you look directly if in a fusion, uh, case, uh, I recommend a lot of folks to use the, uh, the rice solid syrups or just skip this entirely and go to, you know, a corn syrup. Uh, that's that works kind of done for you and uh yeah it's one thing to put it in the mash and, and things like that but again the utilization in a single step infusion for rice the gelatinization point is so high you just it's it's not achievable there um uh, so i i i kind of tend if somebody wants to make a classic light american lager uh just to go right to those two products and uh they're not covered in this, but they are, they're made from the exact same thing. So uh, that's, that's a sidestep to uh, uh, it, it doesn't hurt anybody's feeling like you're using malt extract and your home brewer's feelings are hurt because it's not all grain. Uh, so I, I just, I, I like those two in the toolkit. Um, they're very easy to use and uh, you do get much better utilization. I think, do you, do you, uh, have you fooled around with the rice syrups uh, at all there, Ashton, uh, in the labs? Yeah, and actually, you're bringing up a really, really good point, Alan, because, I mean, number one, a lot, of, a lot of Americans in general, when we hear the word corn syrup, we, we immediately think of high fructose corn syrup. And the, the brewing adjuncts, the, the liquid adjuncts used in brewing are not, they're not just straight monosaccharides. They're, they're uh, developed in such a way using enzymes that the the carbohydrate profile of brewing sugars looks like wort. So they're, you know, they're about, you know, 75% or, or less um, fermentable. I think a lot of these have a real degree of fermentation around 60%, um, which is much different than a high fructose corn syrup. And then the other thing too, like the rice syrup solids that Alan just mentioned, 
again, a lot of people, I think, assume that rice syrup solids somehow mean that it's like sugar and it's not. Rice syrup solids are, um, have relatively low fermentability. And again, they're, they look more like wort from a carbohydrate profile than they do simple sugars. But yeah, Alan, I, I have played with those and I think they're, that's, that's also, they're easier to, you don't have to mess around with the, the conversion. Right, right. Do those, and those products, do they need to be heated? I know a lot of liquid adjunct needs to be heated to, to handle it properly. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, most, most liquid sugars that are stored in large adjunct silos are typically around, you know, 100, 120 degrees Fahrenheit to, to make them pumpable. But, you know, if you have a bucket of, um, you know, a pail of a liquid sugar, you could, you could literally, uh, you know, dunk it in hot water to, to soften it up to make it easier to pour into a kettle. Right. Or move to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> okay um all right let's do scenario two let's say that same brewer wants to brew with maybe rye for the first time how do you help them decide between flaked rye toasted rye and malted rye and whatever else might be on the table well alan has a rye sense of humor but my my thing would be to um if i if i didn't like the person which is really rare i would suggest like a really high like you know go big or go home and go like 80 percent rye malt oh my goodness <laughs> but if i if i would suggest to most brewers to really temper the rye i mean 20 to 25 percent rye is uh might be a challenge because rye is can be very rich in beta glucan and it can be really really a nightmare in the brew house if you go crazy with it so i think when you put your when you dip your toe into the rye pool you ought to start out light and i think that one of the things about rye is that it to me it's a different adjunct because it i i get a really nice distinctive uh, character from rye i think the flavor is really interesting but um that's that's my advice is to go go gently at first if you've never used it what do you think? But how do you that? decide between those different uh, forms of it, if you will? So well, I'm you know, whether you're using a... Alan, so okay, all right, okay, yeah, and and there again, uh, regardless of the brew house equipment setup, I, I would definitely uh, uh, be looking at a, a flaked rye over uh, any any kind of a whole rye because if anyone has ever heard, you know, just rye malt or raw rye in a roller mill, it's like milling you know, roofing nails, uh, it's a very, very hard, hard, uh, kernel. And, um, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, if the flaking process, uh, you know, just lends more to the, uh, uh solubility of it. Uh, I think to crack that rye kernel, if you were using raw or, or malted rye, uh, I, I, I would just, there'd be no question. I would go to a, uh, uh, a flaked rye on, on this one, and again, keeping it in that uh, spicy. The same, the same things Ashen said. Uh, you know, unless you're you're doing a Rogan beer, that's uh, you've got nothing to do all day. Uh, it's a difficult grain uh, to louder with. Um, it, it, it does have a lot of beta G going on in it. You might need exogenous enzymes there uh, as a you know. In case of emergency, break glass just sitting there ready to go. You can add these exogenous enzymes as you need, right? I mean, Ashton, you've uh, you've been there where uh, you can introduce it. 
you don't have to do it from the get-go, but it, it, it can get you through a tough day. Uh, so I think rye is, uh, well, it's an underutilized grain. I'd say of all the ones we've talked about today, uh, oats is the one that's getting all the, the attention now. Uh, wheat's come really into the, the, uh, the focus a lot. Um, <clears throat> rye is sort of, you know, just out there all by itself. Uh, I don't see too, too many questions coming my way on, on that, but, uh, <clears throat> if I do, I, I try to, uh, you know, be the catcher in the rye. And, uh, <laughs> I knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, right. I'm going to disagree. I mean, not not disagree, but I, I give a little bit different point of view here. I agree, Alan, on the flaked rye is a great, great grain to use. But as far as the the rye flavors, you know, within the world of rye grains, I mean, we're departing from adjuncts here, but uh, but rye malt's interesting. You know, I, I think rye malt's fairly easy to use if you buy the right kind of rye malt. Um, and then there's rye specialty malts. We've got, we've got some, uh, crystal rye products from England and we've got, um, we've got some, you know, roasted rye from, from Germany, from Weirman. Um, and I think that those are interesting flavors and, and I think there's a little marketability too with this. I mean, we're talking about, you know, why do food producers use different names for different products? But to me, if you have a, a beer with the name rye and it it does suggest a flavor and if you do your your grist composition correctly you can you can have some really interesting beers that evoke you know pumpernickel or, or bread kind of uh, colors and flavors that i think are kind of fun to play with and the other cool thing about rye is that it's kind of hard to mess up a rye beer with lactose and and fruit because i it just doesn't work so if you as a consumer if you go and look for rye beer you, you're probably going to get like a a beer flavored beer with rye all right guys this has been fun we've covered a lot of ground how would you sum all this up for the brewer who's new to brewing with adjuncts what's the most important thing for them to know i think the the entire range of products no matter where they're from if they're called rolled or flaked i would put those into the kind of the medium degree of gelatinization as far as a pre-gelatinization and I think that the real take-home message on here is to look at the the source of the grain to begin with. So, again, wheat, for example, you can use raw wheat in an infusion mash that has any, you know, it's just wheat bears have been cracked and they'll work fine. So just because it has a low degree of gelatinization doesn't mean it's going to be a problem if if the starch is compatible with your infusion mash. And then you get into the the torrefied micronized products, and they have a very high degree of gelatinization. Again, back to the why they were developed. They were developed for animal feed, and that was the whole idea was to have a high degree of gelatinization. So if you're doing if you're using a product like corn or rice, and you don't have a cooker, um, then I would select you those. Need that. Yeah, because yeah. honestly, from a practical brewing standpoint, if I bought um, if I bought flaked or, or toasted um, or rolled a corn or maize, I would want to cook it because I know that it's not, it's not fully pre-gelatinized and I would want to cook that before I use it. But if I'm using torrefied or micronized rice or, or corn, I'm okay to put that in an infusion mash and not worry about it. I've definitely heard from brewers that have used those flaked maize or rice products and they don't convert and they don't get the yield they're looking for. It's like, well, you didn't use the right process. There's still some brewers out there who maybe think adjuncts are something that they want to avoid in their beers. Is it time for them to reconsider? 
you know, right now, I let's let's really hope that we don't have any you know serious recurring issues with with uh, barley crops. I mean, it, this happens every every decade or so. But if I were if I were um, currently brewing. You know, I, I look at like saxophone players. If you're a if you're a great sax player, you probably double on clarinet and flute and maybe oboe. Um, and if you're if you're a tenor player, you probably you know play soprano. If I were if I were a commercial brewer right now, I'd, I'd bone up on on some of my my chops and make sure that if I needed to to use some other grains because of availability, that that I know how to play the the instrument. You know, you asked a question about adjuncts, John. I think one, and I'm gonna I'm gonna beat up on craft brewers here a little bit, um, and home brewers. If you look, and we've all been around for a long time, you know, adjunct was a, a really dirty word for a really long time. And even even when the BA came out with the definition of craft brewer, it's like, well, there was this whatever ban on adjuncts. I never quite figured that one out. It's like Duvel's got sugar in it, dilutes the flavor, and you wouldn't have Duvel without it. But um, but I think a lot of brewers think, well, you know, why am I using adjuncts? It's just to to make things cheaper. Well, number one, adjuncts are not cheaper than malt. That's that's a misnomer. Number two, be, why? Because they're they're high value food products. Um, the other thing about adjuncts is that they are diluents, and that's a good thing. So, if you're dealing like if we have another weird year in the crop, and let's say that the uh, barley malt protein got high and brewers needed a way of diluting that protein well adjuncts are lower in protein than than barley malt so that's a that's a positive attribute for some brews is to have a lower lower fan level so adjuncts offer that that dilution of protein and they're also a flavor diluent which um you know back in the back in the day when when these big ipas were first started being brewed a lot of brewers didn't want people to know that they were adding cane sugar because that was kind of a, again, there was a negative perception on that, but you can dilute your flavor and you can boost your alcohol and get positive flavors uh, related to that without having an excessive malt character. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I mean, it's, they're just another tool in the toolbox. You can use them to modify texture, you know, uh, do, do all, all the things you just said and more. And, um, like you said, it used to be kind of a dirty word in, in craft beer. Um, uh, and I, I think, uh, that mindset is changing and I hope the episodes we've done with, with Greg Casey and others have helped listeners sort of rethink their, their stance on brewing with adjuncts. Um, has that been, uh, your observation, have you seen people's sort of uh, sentiment begin to change or do you think there's still a, a fight there? Well, well I think uh, adjunct went from a, I'm sorry, Alan, I, I think no, adjunct went from a, a dirty word to a, a positive word. A lot of brewers talk yeah. about adjuncts in a positive light these days. Once you're outside the, you know, right heights about crowd that's, you know, uh, sticking with, with that, uh, you know, I think that what you're seeing in beer now is is just ever expanding opportunities to combine ingredients for interesting outcomes and you know it's not to be corny but amazing uh, <laughs> that was ashton lewis and alan young here on the master brewers podcast i hope you enjoyed the puns as much as i did Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. 
there's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Thank you.